All right. Well, this is part two. Hopefully you enjoyed part one with Phil Gould, one of the most engaging voices in the game. And we've got plenty of topics to cover. So without any further ado, let's rip into part two. Biggest moment you've called, Gus. And and my son watches this all the time, that Cowboys victory and your words. And everyone in that commentary team nailed that call. Post-try – the, I mean, if Kyle Jonathan Phelps. Thurston kicks the goal, oh, unbelievable. Everyone from Freddie jumping around on the sideline, yeah. yourself and Sterlow in the box, Rabs. Um, but the moment you immediately pounced on it, like everyone was talking about the try, the try, the try, and immediately you said, this is the time. This is a fairy tale coming up right now. Is that the greatest moment in a commentary box you've been a part of? It's I, I often refer to the football gods. You know, I've got this fantasy yes, people called do. the football gods. <laughs> change the course of a game at any time. And, you know, I've seen so many things happen in rugby league. And it's the one thing I could never understand about the football gods because here was a chance for what I would have said would have been one of the most unbelievable moments in rugby league history, that the greatest player in the game, yes. kicking a goal from the sideline after the siren, to win North Queensland their first ever premiership. Yes. All right? This would have been one of the most magical moments to score that try with 10 seconds left to play and the way he had, had crafted that. And yeah. then to have this kick from the right-hand touchline, the greatest goal kicker and the greatest player. Everyone thought he was making it. And we set the moment up for the for the victory. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. it was This was going to be the greatest moment. And he hits the upright. And all of a sudden all those – setbacks the Cowboys had had in previous years, you know, the hand of God and the knock on at the scrum Mm. and all these sort of things came flashing back. Oh, surely they can't, surely, you know. And Thurston's reaction when it hits the post because he thought it was swinging back in. It would have been one of the greatest moments ever. And I'm saying to the football gods, (laughs) why why didn't you give it to him? To us. Why did you have to wait another five minutes to let him kick a field goal and destroy Ben Hunt Hunt, in the process? Why, why? Why yeah. did we have to wait another five minutes? Why couldn't we at least let that kick go through the post yeah. and everybody's happy? Yes. And, and and that's the one thing I could never understand. And and the one thing that's that's great. with Maybe work, there's a big story coming up for Ben Hunt down the track. Maybe the football guards aren't finished with it. Well, I hope there is and I'm, and I'm sure there is. He's such a talented young man. But it was kind of like, you know, and when we've been doing this for a lot of years and you work with these people like your Paul Vortons and your Peter Sterlings and your Ray Warrens and these people and – um, the young fellows that we've got on the team now who are just brilliant, uh, setting the scene, you know, feeling a part of the theatre. And, and sporting coverage is about the theatre. It's mm. building the moments. You know, mm. it's not about who's the expert on this or who's going to do that. It's it's building those big moments. And Ray Warren is brilliant at uh-huh. it. And there, are, there are times where we know just to say nothing and just allow his voice to carry the moment and do what it's going to do. And it's we'll sort of set the scene and then allow him to call the action as it goes on. And I just... When that ball started to swing back, I can tell you all of us in the commentary box were standing. We weren't sitting. We were all standing. Arms started to go half up <laughs> because we thought, well, this is going to swing back. His ball always swings back and it hit the upright. And I thought, well, there are no football gods. <laughs> I've been wrong all this They're time. They're fictional. I've been wrong all this time. There are no football gods. Wow. Is that, what That's your favourite favorite game to call? Uh, yeah, I've had some wonderful games to call over the years. Um too many to even remember, but that's a moment that really stands out for me, yeah. a really magic moment. Geez, we had some good grand finals there. I mean, 14 with South. I know they flogged Canterbury, but that was a moment. 
15, 16 Sharks. with the Sharks. South was good because of the Battle of South. South being kicked 100%. out of the competition and the, the, the fight to get them back in and be reinstated and then the whole Russell Crowe theatre around it and this great old club who hadn't won a premiership since 71 and and finally come through to win it. So that was that, that was a great moment, you know, Sharks winning their first ever premiership, yeah. all these types of moments that we've had. We've been lucky along the way to have them. Uh, and our sport will continue to keep throwing them up. That's the beauty of sport. Just on the Ben Hunt thing and, and people who listen into the podcast, and I was surprised by the numbers who listen actually, Dan. Um, I've got some well, thank theories. Thank you, everyone, for Dan. I'm right down for being theories. Can I hit some theories at you? You can either be with me, against me, or impartial to it. Okay, Gus. Well, here we go. My theory is this. Why the hell do halfbacks catch off the kickoff? To me, it's logical that the fullback would stand in that position. Why do we put the halfbacks, such as Ben Hunt, in that position? I would have the fullback standing there. Are you with or against me? Well, that's if you know where the kick's going to go. You'll think you'll see that I think mainly the fullbacks stand underneath the uprights. Yes. Because they're the ones most adept to dealing with balls that might hit the crossbar or the upright as they're coming at them from there. So... That's where the fullback stands. Well, that's where the pink boots of Darius Boyd stands when Hunt drops the ball. Yeah. And I was just saying that, – That Hunt moment, and you're talking about working with brilliant people in commentary, and Tom Malone, the director of sport mm. at the time, raised it at the next couple of meetings that we had. Uh, when Ben Hunt drops the ball, he picks it up and he passes it, I think, to Sam Thiday, yes. and Sam Thiday heads upfield. And most of the cameras follow Sam yeah. Thiday. And the corner camera, I think it's camera 11. Stayed on his face. Zoomed right in on Ben Hunt. Yeah, brilliant as he went down on his haunches and put his hand over his head, knowing that that was the, that was the news, yes. that was the shot. And that's dealing with great people in, 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 that we've got at Channel 9 and knowing the moment, yes. knowing the game, knowing the media, knowing the theatre. So when later when we go back to dissect this and look at it, you capture that great moment and the pain on his face when that, when that happens. You know? And that's and – that's, that's, sorry, the, what's your other theory? So, so, so with, against or <laughs> impartial? To, to fullbacks should be taking those catches where most people would kick from the right to left. Probably. I think the football's in the right spot. Okay. Well, look, you can go back and do kicking analysis on all teams. Most teams kick off to the same spot all yeah, the time. Are you happy anyway. with the halfback catching or prefer the I'm fullback? I'm happy with it. Surely anyone catch can a catch ball. a football. Yeah. Okay. Well, don't start him on players kicking out on the full from kickoffs. <laughs> Buy points. Why do we have buy points? Oh, like, what, what, Joel, let no, this what, go. No, no, I'm asking him, though, what, why do we complicate the We've got the, the great ladder? man in here. You've got him to but your what, house and you're wasting his time with buy points. points. Impartial? Impartial. Impartial. <laughs> Thank you. 12 players. Rugby union is boring as batshit because they've got 15 players on the field. Rugby league for 100 years plus has had the same amount of players on the field. We're fitter, faster, stronger. I believe it would be a better game with 12 players. With me, against or impartial? Which player are you taking off? Lock. Taking the lock off. Yes, who's down an extra front row anyway. I'm kind of warming to it. Mm. Yes, I'm kind of warming to it. If if we can't get some sensibility around the rules and the interpretation and the refereeing, I think it's only inevitable that we should drop back to a 12-man game and at least give it a trial. Okay. Know, we, we asked for it at the end of last year. I think there was a couple of games where they'd had no bearing on finals finish or anything like that. And we said, well, let's try 12 men. Let's, let's have a look at it and see how it goes. Okay, why, just on that same thing, why do we not commit at the start of the season or midway through the season that if there's a dead rubber, we, we, we are going to trial this rule? We had uh, the last round last year, we didn't trial a single thing. Yeah. With me or against me? I can't answer you. Yeah. Um, short kickoffs, I think they're heavily underused. This is Risk investigative and reward. You, mate, this is investigative journalism. Statistics are with it. Yes. Uh, statisticians it. For, for, and game analysts for me for years are always setting the short restarts are the way to go. Your, your percentages are far greater. With me. Yeah. With me. Okay, last thing, I, I feel like such a big game was a billion-dollar industry. I don't know what it's going to look like going forward. 
But so many times I see this scenario. You win in your first season, 1998 grand final. You play Balmain, 1988 rather, Balmain. In the game before that, the score is 9-2, Balmain lead Cronulla. Cronulla have a gift kick with four minutes to go. They haven't scored a try the whole game. Right in front. I believe you take the two, go for the converted try. They tried to score two tries in four minutes. It happens too much. Do we play too stupid in the game and should we take more goals when we're behind in this I've scenario? Actually, I've actually done that a couple of times in my career. Yes. Uh, taken two points or take, even taken a field goal to get within striking distance. Yes. Uh, and when we were winning, winning us a game for the Roosters one night at, at Broncos, we played Broncos in Sydney. And you'll remember it because we ended up winning with a penalty goal because Andrew G didn't tap Mon- the ball properly. Monday from, night football. Monday yes. night football. It was a big crowd there. And I think we were down uh, – I've got to remember this now. I think we were down – 10-4 with about six, eight minutes to play. And we got a penalty in front of the post. And I said, kick the goal. Yes. Just in case we can't convert the try if we get it. But at least it got us in the position. Then some minutes later, Darren Juni chipped over the top, oh, regathered yeah. and scored in the corner. We missed the goal from the sideline. Ivan Cleary missed the goal. Yep. And then with 30 seconds to go, um, we put a grubber kick down in goal. They had a 20-metre tap. Andrew G come out and didn't tap it properly. And we got a penalty in front of the post. <laughs> My only regret is that I should have said don't take the – I felt guilty winning the game that way <laughs> and I should have said take you know, take the tap and, yeah, and try yeah, for the yeah. try. But at the time I never thought You that. never feel guilty. Have, don't have you got don't know, lie to us here, Gus. Have you got an actual like, – aside from that, have you generally got a coaching or a selection regret? Is there, is there anything oh, that – Oh, hundreds. Yeah. Hundreds. But yeah. not, not one that absolutely stands out? You're going to make mistakes. No, not, not anything that really st- – Stands out. You're gonna. It's the only way you learn is by making mistakes. We all make mistakes and we all lose. And um, even the very best coaches of all time only win sixty percent of the time. You know, they're losing forty percent of their games, and that's yeah. where that's where you find out if you're a good coach is, is how you handle those four uh, four out of ten losses. Trent Robinson was in my backyard with Kobe, who who you've met, and we're having a wine. We we, we live together in France, and I said to him, he'd win the company's first ever year, and he he sculled his wine. He got a cab home, and he said, look. We're clearly drunk if you think I win the comp me first year. He rings me up the week before and he says, I, I don't know, I can't talk, it's a big week, but I just want you to know you're right. And this is 11 months on, I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah. And he does what you did and he wins the comp in his first year. Why, what are your observations of him that makes him so good? He's played seven seasons as a coach and won three times. Well, he's obviously very good at what he does. And Trent's always been a, a real student of the game. He actually played lower grades at the at the Roosters when I was coached there. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, he We're 1.5 metres apart, everybody. Yeah. Don't panic. He moved, at least he, he moved yeah. on. Uh, I think he went and played with Parramatta. Might have played yes, the first he did, grade under game Brian there. Smith, then he yeah. went up to Brian Smith coaching at Newcastle. Yep. And then he came to, to Roosters under Brian Smith as a coach when Brian Smith took over from Brad Fittler, I think it was, you know. And the club always had a very healthy respect there for his time as an assistant coach. So it didn't surprise me when Nick got him back um, after Brian Smith to, to coach the side. And he's always been a great student of the game. He's, um, I think it's more than just the X's and O's for him. I think it's, it's, it's more about the people and the personal development and the development of the team. And his team, he, when you watch the Roosters play, you know it's a Roosters team. You mm. know there is something different about the way they play. It's also a great club with great talent and the ability to attract great talent and that helps a lot as well. But 
they wouldn't be going there if the bloke couldn't coach either. Mm. You know, that's that's one of the things. So it's been an extraordinary period for the club. It's been an extraordinary time. And I, I, I had eight or ten years there associated with the with the Roosters and in the early stages. And to see the club it's built into today is uh, is something we all take pride in. And, and Trent Robinson's doing a wonderful job. And he'll coach there for as long as he wants. So I don't... Yeah, I don't think we'll ever see a time where he's not the Roosters head coach. I used to follow him in the Dimmick's bookstores, and I think, what am I following this bloke? He was such an alluring, just a good bloke to be around. But just on that, right? And and he and Bellamy, then it's the field. Their defence over a sustained period is elite, and they're producing numbers pretty much not seen since Gus you're coaching uh, ninety to ninety two. When you're at Penrith, and I don't think you'd know this. I don't. Geez, you've done some work here. No, no, Josh. but I, I've had this theory for a while. Mm. So Gus, when he had the Panthers, and I don't know if Gus will actually like my theory, but ninety to ninety-two, you were conceding twelve point eight points a game, right? Which is the sort of numbers that Bellamy and and Robinson try and produce consistently. Not many coaches can sustain those numbers. I've got a loose theory, Gus, that Penrith have such a riches of talent. Like, like you go to watch any, you know, Glenmore Park or St. Dominic's or their brothers, I think they're called now, but these elite players. And, and I'm, I think that perhaps that there's such a riches of talent at Penrith that the superstars are being seen, but the grafty types might fall through the cracks, the Fanukans and those sorts of things. And so, therefore, in 26 years since you stopped coaching at Penrith as a head coach, no one's got near those numbers of 12.8 per season that you were producing there. And I believe it's because it's such a talented attacking – attack What is what generally grabs the eye for people when they're watching. Mm. Is there any sort of sense in what I'm saying here, do you think? 26 years, Gus, is a long time. N- numbers – look, and I'm not saying – they're not even close. Your, your numbers are 12.8 per year. The next best would probably be 17 points a year for mm. 26 years of Penrith Panthers. Mm. Yeah, well, I think I think all what you're touching on important there is the importance of your defence, and that's that's a culmination of your attitude and your attention to detail and um, the toughness within the group, their constitution, uh, their ability to handle pressure, their ability to handle all conditions at all times in any venue, home or away, regardless of opposition, um, and these are all types of things that are very much a part of the mental training and the attitude control. That is so important. It's a it's a it's a battle of the mind more than anything. Mm. Defence is the hardest part of the game. This is where you show your commitment. This is where you show your knowledge of the game, and it's quite obvious from that perspective when you're talking about well coached teams and teams that aren't so well coached. Uh, the individual flair and talent that produces points. You know we all long for it, but it's not necessarily what's going to win you a premiership. Mm. Um, and if you look at Roosters last year. They won their comp just through their defensive mindset and mm. their, their ability to play out close games with no panic and no pressure, knowing full well that they could hold the opposition at bay any time they wanted. And and that's very reflective of the coach and it's very reflective of, of Bellamy and the teams he's created at the Melbourne Storm. And They've won games over the last three or four years with an, an inferior roster to what he had when everything mm. was at their best. Mm. Um, games they should never have won. They should never have been in the games, but they were still there and then – they were able to craft out a try and a penalty goal and, and get the result because their defence keeps them in the contest for so long. And it's intimidating for some sides to play against them because um, you feel as though you're never going to score. You don't know where your next points are coming from. And once they score twice, you wonder how you're ever going to catch mm. them. And that's what eventually beats team. It's the mental side of the game. 
And the mental side of the game is reflected more in your defence than anything else. And that's why I think Bellamy and, um, and Trent Rob- Robinson are so superior at the moment is that the, the, mental, um, the mental application that their sides have to the game. And if you now listen to people like Cooper Cronk or Billy Slater, who's mm. with us at Channel 9, come out into the commentary field and start, you start to get an insight into the way they view the game, uh, I find all that very, very mm. interesting. But it's, you know, you're right, the, the whole defensive thing. And you've got to have play. No one wins without players. Some, some can't win with them, yeah. but no one can win without them. You've got to have the talent mm. and the players and, and there's no doubt about that. But you create an environment where the hard parts of the game are really respected and the excellence in those hard parts of the games is what's expected from everyone. Well, the absolute masters that you two have brought up and, and you've got Gus, Jack Gibson, Wayne Bennett, you bought, you fellas were the the best at manipulating the media to your advantage. Some coaches see the media as a hassle and ha- d- d- do press conferences only because they have to. When did you work out, hang on, this is a tool I can use. I can speak to my players using this. I can speak to the other team. I can sort of get my way. I can change the narrative. What made you realise, hang on, we, we can do something with this? Uh, probably watching Jack, to be honest, because I played through a large part of Jack's coaching career and I know what he used to do to our coaches. I know mm. <laughs> how the media was used to intimidate our coaches or to put them on tilt and have them concentrating on the wrong thing at the wrong time. And uh, and the media can be a weapon and you you it's going to be there. Mm. You may as well use it to your advantage than to anyone else's and you use it to motivate, you use it to inspire, you use it to deflect, you use it to cover up you use it to Mm. whatever you can do and there are some that are very very good at it the problem for some is that they think that's the only thing they need to do yes yeah but some get more they they think that's the only thing they need to do to justify themselves and promote themselves and and, but that might get them an extra contract or two you've got to back it up with results and you've got to back it up with knowledge in the dressing room because players players don't respond to the coach who's good with the media you know you know as you know the, the, the players work out very, very quickly whether the coach knows what he's talking about. The mm. players work out very quickly if the coach is there for himself yes. or he's there for the players. And I say to all young coaches, I've said it all, you know, and, and we've, we've nurtured a lot of young coaches coming into this game over the years. And I said, the first thing I say to them is, you work for the players. They don't work for you. The minute they feel it's about you, you're dead. Yeah. It's only a matter of time. So, you know, all those trickeries in the media and all the things of self-promotion, I've seen plenty of coaches, you know, fall on that sword over the years because that's not the be-all and end-all. You've got to be good behind the scenes. You've mm. got to be good in the dressing room, in and around the dressing room with their personal lives and your relationship. And and they've got to constantly feel like you're bettering their career, you're bettering them as a person and them as a footballer and that they feel valued no matter how small or big their role is, that they feel valued as part of your team. And that's mm. that's the culture you want to build within your club and uh, within your football team. And then – they say players play for coaches. They, they don't necessarily play for coaches, but they play for their teammates in that environment that's created by the leaders of your club, which are your coaches. Mm. And it's it's that it's that environment they create. It's the chemistry they create within people and also the feeling – the best coach I ever had was Warren Ryan and I can remember back in the early 80s. And I Jeez, played, everyone says that that had him. I play with – yeah, because the thing about Warren was that when we took the field, it didn't matter who we were playing – we honestly believed we knew more than the opposition. Yeah. We honestly believed we knew more than they did. You know, and that was like in 
I played with a team in Newtown in 1981 that went to a grand final and we were pretty much a ragtag bunch, mm. you know, picked from clubs. Warren Hand picked us all from different clubs and all over the place and some were at the very back of their career and some were young blokes on the way up and, you know, um, and Warren had sort of cobbled this group of people together and I can remember those days us going out into games thinking we just know, we know better than the opposition. Mm. And then he came to the Bulldogs and... Um, went to three grand finals in a row. We won a couple of premierships in 84, 85 and it was the same thing and there were some great teams around them. Parramatta was a, a great side. The Dragons were great sides. Mm. You know, Manly had great teams and you know they were all playing in grand finals around that time. But when we took the field, we honestly thought we knew better and that was what would sustain us because that's the way he had us convinced. And it's amazing the number of people who came out of those squads that went on to be coaches or to be influential in the mm. coaching mm. for a large yeah, number yeah, of yeah. years and it's – and that was the mindset. It was that that culture. They people talk about what the bulldog culture is, you know. And I hear a lot of interpretations, but it was always for me the bulldog culture is that we were a cut above the rest. We believed it. We honestly believed it. You need that arrogance, don't you? All that healthy arrogance. Well, it's it's an it's an arrogance born of demonstrated ability. Mm. It's one thing to be arrogant. It's another thing to back it up. Mm. But. You know, we had great sides too and great players, but you know, the teams made the players. The players didn't make the team. It was the it was the team mentality and, and the fact that we honestly believed we were we were better than the rest. And it's that was something that Warren Ryan was really good at creating. And it's something that, as a coach, the greatest gifts you can give a player is self confidence, self belief, and the ability to think. If you can give your players that. They look after it, the rest. Mm. They're the three most important ingredients. If you want to coach someone, give them self-confidence, give them self-belief, teach them to be able to think under pressure, all right, and to believe in themselves under pressure. That's the gift. It's not the X's and the O's and put this play on and put that play on. That's that's part of it, you know, and that's the, the, the fun part of it. But being able to instill individuals that, you know, your good is as good as anyone else and your best is as, be- as, as good as anyone else's and that we can beat these people because – and. Forget about their scrapbooks and forget about their reputations. Here's their weak spots. Play to this and this is what will happen. Mm. And you'll be better than them on this day. And it happens. That's where the belief grows. You know, you know, you, mate, people pay hundreds <sighs> of dollars for that stuff. Yeah. And which Gus has just espoused. But you know the you know that thing though? Like so I, I got the leading point score in two thousand and Junior Pierce, I don't believe, was the greatest coach of all time, but he he backed me to the hilt, right? And I was a player who needed a cuddle. Terry Lamb came in the next year, and the very first thing that Terry Lamb said to me was, who was a great player, Terry Lamb. But the very first thing he said to me, he said, you're no guarantee to be on my side. And for a bloke who needed a cuddle, it just wasn't – it wasn't the approach for me. But anyway, let, let's lighten it up. So, yes. Trent we've Robinson, kept the man for nearly yeah, yeah, an hour. Yeah. We've got to wrap this Trent up Trent Robinson, soon. just on Trent Robinson, a cheap throwaway <laughs> line is people say, oh, yeah, but he's had the cattle, all those sorts of things. They were twenty-five to one when they started the season in his first season, which he won the yeah, club. Right. So, and he built the squad around that. So, just that's yeah, remember too that when the roosters and people talk about the roosters and their ability to buy quality players, when they've won premierships, there's been more than thirteen or fourteen players in those seventeen that came to them as teenagers. Yes, mm. there's been a whole development program there, which we put back in the early nineties, right? Yes. When I first went there, that development program, when they won the comp in two thousand and two, when they won the competition in you know with Trenton the last couple of years, a lot of those players came to them as teenagers. Yep. Now some of them are senior players. Boyd Cordner came to them at seventeen years mm. of age. Yep. Some of them are now senior players. Jared Weir Hargreaves Jake has Fred. been with the club. They've all been there for a long time as teenagers, yep. and and because they've come that through that club and, and come through that culture, uh, when young fellas come into the club, this is the way we do football at the Roosters. This is what we do. This is how we play. This is how we think. This mm. is what we, you know, and that's. 
you know, um, whatever that mentality is, you believe in it and you believe in it, that's, that's the important part of it. There, there are some teams I watch play and I feel you've got no personality, you've got no character, you're, you're just out there. Why are we so hoping. copycat? Why are we so co- why are so many clubs so copycat? Probably safety. I, I feel for young coaches because the media scrutiny these days is is incredible. There are so many opinionated talk shows and mm. journalists, and the the game is scrutinised more than ever before. It was never like that when I when I no. started coaching and playing. We didn't have that sort of you know it was covered in the media, but not like it is today, and not with so many ex players and ex coaches in the media passing comment all the time as well. So. The trap that the coach will fall into is listening to that too much and then mm. playing to that too much, and that's that's the first step to disaster. And I see a lot of coaches, you know, along the way, I can feel like they're just losing their way because they've got their priorities wrong at mm. the moment. And over the years, I've you know been asked to go and talk to a few, and when you sit down and boil it down from you know, until they can admit that, they can't get themselves out of it. The the, the media puts a lot of pressure on people. Gus, uh, you're renowned for your Seinfeld. Right? Oh yeah. If if we could tie someone in as a character, is there a Jerry? Is there a is there a Kramer? Is I want to know a, the Costanza. Is there a Soup Nazi? Is there anyone who comes to mind as a a character? Either Seinfeld, Seinfeld characters within the game, <laughs> or you've played with, or coached, or Jerry. Jerry. You commentate with, perhaps Jerry. Jerry. Could be a Paul Wharton. <laughs> what, what I see in Jerry is someone who's just never stressed. Nothing's ever a worry and he looks oh. at life with – Life's good for Jerry. With great fun and great mirth. And yep. Fatty Wharton's like that. I don't <laughs> think Fatty will ever die of stress. Uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of it. Jim, Jim Maloney's like that. Yeah. James Maloney's like that. He's, Jerry? Yeah, yeah. He can see the funny side of everything and crack a joke at anything. He's always got a funny story. So. Um, and never stressed. There's, there's never a stressful bone. In his, there's a funny story in the uh, – um, which game was it? It might have been the grand final that the Sharks won. Did he throw an intercept in that game? Yes, he did. Uh, he did or was it in or was the that, final? Was it, was it in the Origin game where he threw an intercept. Origin. He threw an intercept to um, Valentine Holmes, ran the length of the field. New yes, South Wales on the top. Right. And they got behind the posts. And they all gathered in there and no one wanted to say anything. And he sort of looked at me and said, well, it was never all going to go our own way. <laughs> and it just sort of break. That's what that's what Jimmy Maloney is. So, yeah, probably Fatty and, and Jimmy is a Jerry. Anything for uh, – uh, is there a Kramer? A Kramer. Well, a hipster doofus. Dan, how would you sort of oh, – I'll, I'll tell you who Kramer reminds me of. Kramer with all his schemes, you know, like he's <laughs> – all these money-making schemes and all these sort of things is Joe Thomas. Remember Joe Thomas? Joe yeah. Thomas. Joe Thomas was always a money-making – Sean Garlick was always <laughs> yeah. a money-making scheme. And well, he, he hit one. He hit one. He, he got the <laughs> yeah. pie, Gallo's pies. But he's um, – yeah, Kramer always reminds me of Joe Thomas. Every time Kramer comes through the door and says, you know, he's going to combine a bottle with sauce and mustard, I'm thinking that's Joe Thomas. <laughs> hey, hey Block, Blocker's got some ideas too. Blocker would always come to me with an idea and I'd say, Block, ring me back in two weeks and we'll go through it. And he never, never, never rings it back. Never. I can't believe you don't like Kirby enthusiasm or certainly not as much. Not as much. I, I, I just find him a bit crass, a bit um, – he's a bit too full on for me. I, you know, Larry me, David. Yeah, it makes me feel a little bit uneasy. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. A lot of people, I think, have that exact same opinion. If yeah. they're Seinfeld nut, they just can't make the conversion. I can't make the conversion. Did you watch the Seinfeld series? So there was the series where they brought, they had a Seinfeld reunion. 
That's the one to watch. That's if you in ever, the curb. The, yeah, I enjoyed that one. Yeah, I enjoyed, yeah. When they came back and yeah, talked yeah. about it, I enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, uh, Seinfeld. I, I had a great mate of mine for years. He died um, about eight or ten years ago, but um, he always said that we were living like Jerry and George long before Jerry and George come along. <laughs> <laughs> but we argued over who was Jerry and who was. George. <laughs> Your salary caps a hundred bucks for Seinfeld. How are you spending it for the forecast members? Well, it starts and ends with George. Yeah. You know, without George. He's the show. He's the show. He gets 40 bucks. <laughs> hey? He gets 40 of the He gets 80. I'll find the oh, other 80. somewhere else. <laughs> I think you can live without a loan. They only put her in because the network said, I think she's fabulous, but they only put her in because the network said, you need a woman. You need a woman. You can't have an all-boy show. And she, she tells the story, the first series she was there, she had to go back at the end of the series, she said, you've got to give me some lines, I've got no funny lines. And they said, well, we've never written for a woman. She said, write me as a bloke. Uh, yeah. Write my, write my character as a bloke. And that's what Elaine was. You know, she, that's, they gave her the same roles as everyone else, you know. What a show. She was the only one in the first episode who was absent. Yeah, she yeah. was. That's why, because they said you need a girl. You need yeah. a girl. I think I think there was a pilot and maybe only one more in the yeah. in the initial years. Yes. Gee, it's ordinary. Go back and watch it. Well, when you consider what it became, like George is his manager, Jerry's manager. He's not his mess bait. No, yeah, and it's. Uh... Let's wrap it up. Let's go one question each. Right, out. I'll go first. Um, do you think in three, five, ten years we'll we'll look back at this period and go, you know what, it was brutal but it actually turned out to be the best thing for the game. If we all come out of this, it's the best thing for the game. Well, it depends where we go from here. depends where we go from here. There, There is a real opportunity, and I, I spoke to Peter Valenis about this a few weeks ago. I said, it is what it is. They're going to close us down. They're going to stop us from playing. Whether we resume now or in six months or 12 months, whatever it is, we will restart again. We have got a very valuable product. Uh, I hear the doom and gloom around the, the money and it's going to be hard in the initial stages. But there is an opportunity to right some things that have just been wrong with the game for too long and, you know, and things that were getting out of control. And if we don't take that opportunity, then we're, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Mm. That's the way it is. If we don't get it right this time, given this opportunity, then we don't deserve to be successful. But I believe we will. It's just a matter of how long this goes on. How I keep saying to people, the amount of time that we are out and not playing and not bringing revenue into the game is going to really be reflected in what the game looks like when we're finished. Yeah. You know, well, you're, the, you're, the, the aim is to keep 16 clubs. The aim is to go back to where we were. If we're out for six months or 12 months, I don't think that'll be possible. Well, you've talked 18, two years, because your opinion is we need a vaccine. Well, that's so. What's the restart point? You can't half do it. You can't get to seventy five, eighty percent. While ever there, there is the risk of contracting the coronavirus, the government is going to keep us in lockdown. Mm. I thought the players. I, I don't think we should have stopped the competition. I, I think that we were the players were in a safe environment. They were away from the community. There was no crowds. I felt we could have continued to play. You know, and that might have been difficult, but we were coping. And I didn't see any difference in in when we were playing to when we were told not to play. Mm. And as it's turned out, the predictions that were made that forced the, the league into that decision yeah. probably haven't come true. They may well do down the track. I mean, yeah. we're only in the early part of this. But I'm I'm still very hopeful that potentially here in Australia we are not going to get the scenes that we're, we're, we're seeing from overseas in Italy and Spain and, and New York. And um, I would hope that, you know, and I know that's what's affected everyone's thinking here and everyone's you know, been in a bit of a panic about it, but... 
I'm hoping we don't get those scenes here in this country and we clear it up. But while ever there is this type of virus or infectious disease around the world, and the moment we open our borders, we're That's susceptible right. to it again. So for me, it's a vaccine. Now, I imagine they're spending billions of dollars all over the world being the first to come up with a vaccine for this. Whether or not that's possible, I don't know. Until that happens, I find it hard for the game to get back because we need our crowds, we need our membership, we need our sponsorship, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's not going to survive just on that alone, you know. You're in management now, Gus, or about to be. If... Player you, management. You could sort, yes. If I've you could sign. Player management all my life. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, you, so you now got to fact this question. You got to factor in age a little bit as well. If you had to sign a seven-year contract to your books, which player do you want to sign? A seven-year contract. Of the seven current year contract. First yeah, graders. The current con, uh, contracted players. Okay. Which player would you sign? Is it Caelan Ponger? Is it Valentine Holmes? Is it other? Uh, it's a good question. It's one you can make a real fool of yourself with. Um, so I'll go with the one that we committed to at Panthers, which was Nathan Cleary. Nathan Cleary, yeah. you know, And I think that the one thing I kept saying to him and his father, and this was two or three years before that mm. deal was even struck, and I kept saying to Nathan, you know, like, you're not going to have to worry about money. You're not going to have to worry about, you know, um, all those types of things and sponsorships and, uh, you know, chasing money outside your, your, mm. your playing contract. All that stuff will come in time. The one thing or the things that made me confident about Nathan Cleary that I, ca- that I can't say about a lot of other young talent around is that he was virtually bulletproof behaviourally. There was no drug or alcohol issues. There mm. was no behavioural issues. He came from a good family. He'd been a, come from a family that had been in professional sport his whole life. His mm. father had played. I can remember him around training at the Roosters when he was born. Um, he, he'd been around his father when he was coaching. Um, he's got a great... Goal kicking, he's, he's developed his field goal skills and his clutch plays at the back end of games, which is only natural over time. He's still young for mm. a halfback. They don't reach their peak till they're 27, 28. It was the one thing I kept trying to impress upon him. You know, I'd, I'd be leaving the stadium and, and he'd be still sitting in there watching the videos and I'd purposely go and say, what are you looking at? Mm. You know, because it's not there. Yeah. yeah. You know, this has got to be learned on the field. You learn more from the people you play with and against. Well, them. look at Joey's prime. That yeah. was mid to late 20s. Yeah, I said, so, you know, and he'd be watching the Cooper Cronks and the Jonathan Thurstons. I said, they weren't doing this stuff at your age. Some of them weren't even in the first grade team yeah, at your age. Yeah. You know, this is what I used to say to him. I said, Give yourself, be kind to yourself. Mm. So I always used to say to him, be kind to yourself. You know, you're going to stuff up. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to lose games. You're going to miss goals. You're going to miss field goals. You know, but he won't miss tackles. He's mm. a great defender. He's a strong kid. He looks after his body. He's, he's, a, he's a genuine professional in what he does. Um, our goal kicking coach Daryl Halligan, who's coached the best, said to me from a very early age. He said, "You've got a you've got a magician. You've got someone that is is a real craftsman and a real professional in the way mm. he goes about it, from his attitude and everything." So for me, that's a really good solid investment because mm. then you build the people around him and the culture around him from there. So um, if you're gonna if you're gonna sign a player for that amount of time to do that, then I believe they've got to be people that can consistently win your games, you know, and they talk about players that are worth a million dollars. I think there are very, very few players in the game worth a million dollars. And I've said this for a number of mm, years. Yeah. If you're if you're paying someone a million dollars, he's winning you seventy percent of the games he plays. Him personally. Yes. He's yeah. got to be winning you seventy percent of the games you play to to be awarded that money. And some of the players we pay that money to are not doing that. Nowhere near it. And couldn't do it, you know, if, if left to their own devices. So um, you know, that's a 
It's a good question. It's one that people always ask and it's difficult to answer because you make a fool of yourself. But Nathan Cleary can't make a fool of me in yes. that, in that yeah. regard. And that it's, it's yeah. someone that I would always bank my future on. Before we go, and thank you for joining us, by the way, and uh, we're here to talk punting. So I want to finish. The horseshoe ring. Is there a story attached to the ring that you're wearing? Yeah, there is. Um, and it goes back to... Uh, uh, I spoke about him earlier, Alan Denham, who was Jack Denham's son, but we had a mate uh, who actually played lower grade football at the Panthers. Um, good mate of ours. Uh, um, and he committed suicide. Oh, must have been 89 or 90. Mm. Um, I flew back from Hawaii on an end of season trip and rang him up to go to the races actually and only to have his wife tell me that she'd, he'd, uh, he'd mm. taken his own life earlier Jeez. on. And he used to wear a horseshoe ring. So I bought one at that time mm. and I lost one and then I, I got another one made in 1995 and that's the one I wear now. So it's mm. it's actually got nothing to do with the horse racing yeah, or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, it yeah. was story, more, more in memory um, to a good friend who took his own life and, you know, that's that's the thing we all worry about these days is, you know, people's welfare and well-being and we've, mm. we've had a lot of instances of that through rugby league over the years and the pressure it puts on people and, um, and I believe he took his own life through gambling, actually. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the pressures that had, had, had been brought to bear on him, and you just wish he'd put his hand up or put mm. his hand out and, and ask for help. But um, yeah, it's a long time ago now, it's 30 years mm. ago. But yeah. um, every time I look at it, I think of him, which is nice. So that's, yeah. yeah. It's, it's actually got nothing to do with racing. Okay. Mm. All right. Well, Gus, the great man, and and by the way, his podcast, fantastic. Yeah, Bracey's like, a great We're job. like pumping up the. We shouldn't do that because yeah. they're. This is the world's longest podcast. No one's going to get through to that story. (laughs) They'll have turned off an hour ago. (laughs) No, 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 no. We get stats on all that. I reckon they've turned off when he started to give us theories. That's what I think. Yeah, the theories might have killed it, you reckon? Yeah. (laughs) Gus, I I take this home, I edit, so don't worry. Um, but uh, no, six tackles with Gus. Very, very. We talk about ours doing or ours is doing okay. This is going through the roof. Isn't Bracey's a t- Bracey's a great talent, isn't he, Gus? Brilliant talent. Um, and we were lucky to pick him up. We did because we lost. We lost the great Yvonne, Yvonne. Sampson. She went across to Fox, and uh, we all thought, "Gee whiz!" And then Brace came in, and he's been absolutely. He's such a talent. Yes. Uh, last summer, of course, Nine does the tennis now, and he was down at Tennis, which was a, a global audience, and going all around the world, and I'm told that all the great broadcasters around the world were saying, who's that? Wow. wow. You know, and Channel 9 were very aware of it too. They were, you know, who, ESPN. He's a know, gun. Well, he'll never get a big head. That's the beauty of him. No, he's so down to earth. Yeah. He's so down to earth. And he's, he's, um, he's a person who can be really busy, but you never know it. Mm. Um, he's, he's just so compartmentalised. He's so well prepared and he's, he's – he knows exactly where his place is and where it isn't, and he's he's just meticulous. And we, we don't function without people like that. We yeah. don't function with those. That's a real talent. Mm. Not everyone can do it. Like Peter Sterling was the best ex-footballer I've ever seen do it. He was he was brilliant at hosting, but that's a very difficult job. That's a very specialised talent. And James Bracey is as good as anyone I've ever seen. Well, people don't realise you've got someone talking in your ear eighty percent of the time. It's yeah. a punish. It's an yeah. absolute punish. Uh, yeah. And. And you can tell all the nine people respect him. 
you know. Well, yeah, we only got to look at our rundown sheets. You know, when we, you know, it's it's not as easy as just turning up and sitting in front of the camera, and particularly for the host that's got to oh, keep yeah. this moving. And mm. you know, we've got Freddie in the dressing room with so and so, or now we're crossing over to so and so over here and over there. This is all going on in his ear, and it changes. Time. It's changing the whole time. We've got a replay of this. We've got a replay of that. We've got the team song coming through now. We've got this coming through. Um, um, referees just made a statement about this, and blah blah blah. We're going on now. Don't forget, we've got Sunday at Whitecart mm. Oval, and we've got this, and and there's all these things coming at him the whole time, and and. In live television, you've got to be thinking on your feet the whole time. Whatever the rundown says might be necessarily what we're going with. You know, yeah. We've got to go from there. It's the same as the craft of, of calling play-by-play. Play. You know, mm. it's, it's, it's not – and you blokes have done it. You know how difficult it is. But we could never do that. We, we can't call play-by-play. Play. We mm. can't sit there and commentate and get the names right and fill in in between each play and keep the maximum moving and, and make it sound listenable, mm. um, which is why we play the part of what we call colour or opinion and coming in over the top of that and – um, saying that's a no try. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. We're done. Yep. Finish it off, Joel. Oh, gamble responsibly. Gamble responsibly. Have a great week, Gus. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Gamble responsibly.